Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to episode six of One Step Beyond, a fortnightly show about positively engaging with the world outside our door. Whether it's to hike a local trail or climb a distant mountain, travel to a new country or explore culture close to home, run a first 5k or tackle an ultramarathon, One Step Beyond encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. I'm Tony Fletcher. In another world, I'm an author and broadcaster and sometime musician. In this one, I'm just another podcast host looking to spread some love. On this episode, you'll hear my interview with Carla Rhodes, who turned her own life around a few years ago when she quit drinking and picked up a camera, and is now receiving awards left, right and centre, while also seeking to make a difference with her photography. I then pick up from where our last episode left off on the running front, discussing how you can fit speed work into your routines in the process of my undertaking a virtual, though certainly physical, mile race. We discussed the long overdue rise of female guides on the Inca Trail in Peru and how to help support them in this time of coronavirus. Plus, I'll recommend some other podcasts that delve deep into subjects that this show cares about, which means that hopefully you will too. So, wherever you may be in the world, whether you're indoors or out, exercising, chilling, or actively figuring out how to address challenges in your life, get ready to go. One step One Step Beyond is about more than mere athletic achievements. As long as your personal journey got you outdoors, doing something positive for yourself and the planet, I'm interested in the story. That's my preamble for introducing this episode's featured guest, Carla Rhodes. Carla is a wildlife conservation photographer, well at least she is now, who in just the few short years since she picked up a camera has achieved all manner of accolades. She's the winner of the Galapagos Conservancy's 2019 calendar contest, the Reader's Choice winner of the Smithsonian's 16th annual photo contest, shows now the 48,000 entries, and winner of the wildlife category of the Julia Margaret Cameron Awards for Women Photographers. Her photos have been used by BBC News, the Smithsonian Magazine Online, National Geographic, New York City's Urban Audubon Magazine, and more. Now, I do know Carla, and I consider her a friend, but I've only known her since she made major changes to step outside of what may or may not have been considered a comfort zone, to enrich not just her own life, but the lives of many other people as well. One of those people would be her new husband, Andy Chernoff, a name I'm mentioning because he was the conduit to my own friendship with Carla and because his role as a founding member of the Band of Dictators comes up in this story. Carla's personal journey has proven transformational, as you'll hear. You'll also gather quickly that she's quite a raconteur, an attribute not unrelated to her previous profession, which she's about to discuss. In other words, this interview was edited for length. We talked by Zoom, and I started off by asking what her life was like five years ago, 
five years ago, Andy and I basically had gotten our place in the Catskills, I think a year or two prior, Catskill Mountains, New York. And at the time I'd been pursuing comedy and ventriloquism my whole life since I was a kid and wanted to be a very, <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing, a very accomplished ventriloquist. And I had tried to do that just for so long. So this was when online was getting really, really hot and friends were making their shows. So I, I wanted to get a DSLR to basically, that's a really cheaper than getting a really dedicated, serious movie camera. And I got this camera and we started coming up to our house on the weekends in the middle of the woods. And I just started to turn it on wildlife. And as time went on, I realized how happy and how centered that wildlife photography made me. You actually went through like a big sort of, you know, lifestyle change, I guess, as well, prior to that five years ago. Do you mind telling us about that? Because I'm sure it's crucial to the to who you are Oh, now. yeah, yeah. Now I know what we're getting at. Seven years ago, uh, in May, this past May, I hit seven years without an alcoholic beverage. And that decision completely changed my life. It was tied in with performing. Um, I left New York City last year after 16 years. And Andy and I were first starting dating then. And I just, I just started, you know, he has a certain stability around him. And I just started noticing people around me, 10 to 15 years older, that were doing a lot of the same things that I were, was doing, going out to see shows, drinking maybe a little too much, staying out all night. And I just, I just made this decision one morning. I looked at Andy and I said, I'm never, ever drinking again. And he goes, I've heard that before. And then seven years later, I didn't ever drink again. You're making it sound like, oh, I'm just somebody who had a drink and I decided to stop drinking. I did not know you back in, in New York City at all. So was it as simple as that? Or would you say you had a serious drink problem? Um, I don't think I had a serious drink problem. I think I was self-medicating really hard emotions. I'm a survivor of pretty severe uh, abuse when I was a kid and a young adult as a teenager. And I think as I get older, as I got older, especially in my late 20s, early 30s, I'm 38 now, so what's the math? I was 31 when I quit drinking. I'm from Kentucky. I'm bad at math. These feelings bubble up. And because I hadn't been to therapy, they, I just didn't know what to do with them. And I was so uncomfortable. I do think if I would have gone the way that I was going, that I would have totally had a drinking problem without a doubt. So basically, I think I caught it like right at the tipping point. That's the honest truth. And luckily, I feel like there's always been something over my shoulder, like watching over me. I don't know what it is. I'm not a religious person. I'm more spiritual, but something made me see things around me, people around me. No, I don't want to end up as like a 78 year old performing in an East Village basement with my puppet for a drink ticket. Did it take getting sober to say, I want to have a new profession and I wonder if I can be that photographer I've always wondered if I am. I frankly had no idea, and this is true, that I was capable of being a photographer. It was something that I literally never, ever thought about. I swear. The, the photography thing 
happen. I don't know. I'm sure I'm thinking of some self-help thing I've read in the past, but it's kind of like when you get out of your own way, basically things happen. I can be having the worst day ever. And I really struggle with anxiety. And I try to talk about it publicly so other people can realize they're not alone and blah, 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 blah. It's not just to be like a buzzword. I always promised if I got to a certain level with my mental health that I would talk about it in the hopes of helping others and be like, she's crazy and did this. Well, I could do that too or whatever, but I could be literally having the worst day crying anxiety attack. If I pick up my camera and go into the woods and, and focus on something, all of it melts away. So for me, that's very addictive too. It's a very mindful activity for me. It's healed me in a lot of ways. Where, at what point did you realize, hang on, I'm actually quite good at this. I still, it's important to let you know, I still look at, and this isn't like the humble game, but I really do look at myself as a beginner because I got my camera five years ago. Um, and there's so much I want to learn and there, I want to be so much better. And I have a very basic lens and I want the Canon 600 millimeter prime, which is $10,000. I still look at myself as a relative beginner, but I started to notice to, <laughs> to go back to your question that you asked, because people started telling me unsolicited, this photo is like really good. And I don't know if people felt they need to say it because they were comparing it to, oh, this was the girl with the puppet and now she's doing this, wow, or what? But it kind of got, the, the feedback got to me. It's nice to get that feedback. Um, and then also I just, something inside of me just pushes me to work on it every day. Really, really try and, and be really critical and read as much as possible I can on it. You've been to India twice and the same part of India twice. So, and in each case, you traveled on your own. So that's a, you know, that's a big step. Can you tell me about why you went to India uh, over other places and what you uh, did on those, on those two trips? I assume that everyone wants to go to India if they can. India is always, I just think India is people. They're the most beautiful people in the world. The, the culture, the spirituality, and, and then the animals too. Carla's first visit to India in September 2018 was initially to participate in something called the Rickshaw Run, a crazy adventure race through the mountain passes of the Himalaya in Himachal Pradesh. There's a longer story behind her getting involved in that event. What matters here is what she tagged onto the trip. You know, after that, I wanted to go do wildlife stuff. And the only national park that was open was in this part of India called Assam, which I, I, I knew nothing about. I just booked it because I always wanted to see elephants in the wild. I realized that of all places of India to go, I really pick like a remote, cool area that a lot of Americans don't go to. Because every American I run into now basically is like, I've been to Goa or you know, basically I hear the same spots over and over. The only person I've ever met that knew about Assam was this guy named Tony Fletcher. Yeah. I think most people only know it because of, uh, because of tea. I mean, that would be the, the, the literal extent of it. But Assam is actually like really trapped between countries, isn't it? It's this narrow, you know, you have to go through a narrow stretch of India to actually get into it. And then it's almost like landlocked. Yeah, it's completely remote and kind of unknown and kind of removed from India. They're kind of looked at as a different area. What happened when I was in Assam is just, uh, I went to Manas National Park. I saw Langers. I saw Asian elephants for the first time. I went to a place called the Hulak Gibbon Sanctuary, which has India's only ape. They've got these big bushy eyebrows and 
long arms. I mean, they're gibbons and they sing. So fell in love and the, um, we were driving back from Manas to Guwahati, the, the gateway to the Northeast in Assam. And I saw this five foot bird standing by the side of the road. And you know, at this point that I have rock and roll roots. And it, it basically looked like if a bird was gonna front a band, it would be this bird. I mean, it looked, uh, to me, they look punk rock. They're five feet tall, they're, they're scavengers. So they have that like look. It, it could totally be wearing a leather jacket and standing in front of a microphone. And I said, what, what is that bird? Oh my goodness. And he said, it's an endangered greater adjutant. And I said, well, I would love to see more. And he said, well, I can take you, you know, right before you go to the airport. And I thought to an area where there's like a lot of them. So, I mean, I thought, oh, he's going to take me to like a nature reserve or something, you know, where there's a lot of these animals. And he takes me to like the most heartbreaking place I've ever been this this huge landfill and there's just hundreds and hundreds of these birds and as an American that doesn't deal with this type of thing I mean it's it's common I know now what goes on in landfills in India but like the, the trash isn't sorted people live and work in the landfill there's tons of cows there's all these egrets that are normally white or they get in breeding plumage a little gold on them but they're covered in and stuff and then these endangered birds scavenging. We were only there for 20 minutes. I took as many photos as I could just from the car. Um, the smell, I'll never forget, clung to my camera, the rubber on my camera and my jacket, and I had to get on a flight. And I was just like, oh my God. I remember in the hotel room spraying my jacket and hoping it would dry, but it, it just smelled so bad. Seeing the bird and the things that go on, this landfill is on top of a wetland. And wetlands are so important, they're disappearing everywhere. I decided then what my focus was as a photographer. I don't want to just take pictures of a bird on a branch looking pretty. Yes, that's great. Um, but I want my photos to make a difference. I want people to look at them and be like, what's that bird? How can I help? You know, if someone just learns a fact, to me, that is helping the cause. If, if someone learns something about a creature in a photo that I'm taking. So you took uh, photographs in that very brief visit back to uh, the stop off, I guess, back to the airport. And in the way that these things can happen, uh, one of those photographs in particular has probably become your most renowned. Can you describe that photograph? Yeah, it's a bunch of greater adjutant storks, the most endangered stork in the world, less than 1,200 left. The majority of the population lives in Assam. Some of them live in Cambodia. I thought I'd add that on the front just to educate, but they're all standing on top of a big uh, pile of trash, like kind of in a line. Do you think, what do you think it is that resonates with the, uh, with the viewer when they see that image that it's had such a, an impact? I think it just shows whenever you show an animal in a landfill, I didn't know it at the time. It's just very clear what humans are doing to our planet. It's just, you know, the cows that scavenge there, a lot of them end up dying because, you know, they're ruminants and they've got compartments in their stomach and they can't push all the plastic through. And, and just there's just something about a landfill to me that's always been upsetting because you don't think about where your trash goes. You know, a lot of people don't. And so when you see how much waste that humans make and then the, these animals are there, here's the thing that I've learned though, since that original trip, 
you know, uh, greater adjutants were on, uh, I don't know what it's called, the official city seal or something of Calcutta a long time ago, because they've always been known for eating trash. They're scavengers, like they eat dead things. So they're going to, they're going to go to a landfill, whether it's on a wetland or not. They also scavenge in wetlands. You know, but they're basically adapting their behavior. The problem with that is, is a lot of the waste isn't sorted. So they could swallow medical waste. They could swallow plastic. Is that impacting on their number? There's only 1,200 left. Are, is, is the fact that they're, they're, they're literally flocking to uh, landfills filled with plastic, is that actually reducing their number further? As far as I know, they're trying to study that. There's a lot of unknown. So I can't actually give you like, a solid answer on that. I know a couple of years ago, there was a mass casualty at that landfill, something around 20 birds were lost or something, which is a big impact. But I, I never got access to, because I'm just reading what's online, what the results of that study, you know, was, I would imagine it affects them in some way. And, and that landfill is eating the wetland. It's a, it's a very, sensitive topic in that area, the whole landfill area. I just got back from another trip there, so where I spent five weeks there. And I'm so glad I did because now it's going to be probably years before I can go back to India. I really hope that that is not the case. I, I recognize right now we, uh, this is sort of like late, latest June. We really, yeah, maybe I'm being a I am so glad I did Kilimanjaro last year. I had a, exactly. yeah, a whole bunch of people who said, you know, I can't do it in 2019, but I can probably do it in 2020, you know, if you like want to. Yeah. And, you know, I, it, I'm just, I'm really, really glad that, that I did it. So, Carla, tell me about um, what was different about your second trip. From what I understand, it had, uh, you know, your first trip to Assam was somewhat random. Your second trip had a more of a purpose and a plan. So just give me the, the skinny on that. I basically became obsessed with the endangered greater adjunct storks. You know, when they say that every you know, I study a lot of other photographers and it seems like every photographer has to either produce their first story, you know, to, I started thinking, how can I move forward with wildlife conservation photography? And I just love this story and I saw it hadn't been covered much. So I start researching these birds and I just love them. And I found this amazing woman named Purnima Devi Barnum, who is saving the endangered greater adjutants. And she's a biologist, but she worked with the community um, a little bit outside of Guwahati. It's called the Kamrup District. And the greater adjutants nest, so, the, so they'll scavenge in the landfill during the day or part of the day, and then they fly home to their nesting trees. I'm smiling, they can't see because I, I just love this story. And in the past, villagers would cut down greater adjutants nesting trees because, I mean, imagine, you don't know till you see it, it's insane. You go to these people's houses and there's five foot birds in their trees. Not one, but like two, three, four, five, six, you know, making nests. And so they're really messy. Apparently they're smelly. And they, they also look like, you know, like a grim reaper or something. They're, they've got this ball, they've got this big sack that hangs from their neck and their, their wingspan is like eight feet wide. It's, it's crazy. It is crazy. I was on someone's roof and they're flying over my head. And I'm like, I feel like they're pterodactyls. It's totally prehistoric, insane. So this woman basically educated the community 
on the greater adjutants to not cut down their trees and and they used to have this bad reputation uh their local name is hargila which is bone swallower you know because they can swallow bones you know they'll eat a frog hole or they'll because they're they're huge i cannot get across to you how insane it is to see a bird this big it's ridiculous carla made contact with panima about six months before her second trip to india which she took in march of this year just before covid19 put us all in lockdown from the offset, she was determined to contribute as well as to photograph. What happened was I go to do the photo project and then I also try to volunteer for her while I'm there and help her. And then I also get to see her. I learned so much from her, just how she operates with this community. It's amazing. And she's like, uh, she's really loved in this community and she's completely turned. It'd basically be like in the Catskills if I got everyone to love rattlesnakes and if they see a rattlesnake to, to, to respect it. How can people find what her work, um, presumably on the internet? What's, uh, is there just a URL for what she does? Hargila Army is on Facebook. And if you Google her, if you Google Greater Adjutants, Purnima's name will come up. Like she's basically responsible for, for saving this bird. Right. Um, so Hargila Army is what? H-A-R-G-I-L-A? Yep. yep. And Hargila okay. Army are the name of the women that in the community that have mobilized and form a group. And they, they sew uh, motifs of the greater adjutants into their traditional gamosas. It's, it's just amazing what, what she's done. She's not even 40 years old yet. There was something that I think we may have glossed over earlier. The Hargila Army, you said it's all women. The... Um, matriarchal society kind of reigns su supreme in Assam. And I think she started teaching these women about greater adjutants because they make the decision on if the tree gets cut down in the village, in their, in their yard, you know? So she felt like by empowering women that it could make a change and it, and it did. Clearly for you, there's been like a double calling here. A, you've discovered yourself as a photographer. B, You've had the chance to go to India and fall in love with, with India. Not that that's difficult to do, but see, it seems like you found another calling, which is to actually get involved in the preservation of certain wildlife. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and that's important that I haven't really shared is I, I call myself a wildlife conservation photographer. And it's really important that people know what that is because there's, you know, I follow a strict code of ethics. I'm not doing anything to attract the animal. I'm not baiting. I'm not using animal calls. And I find a lot of my animals by either going to a nature reserve with a guide or in the Catskills, you know, most of it is found either by luck or by observation and tracking. Tracking meaning like if an animal leaves scat or sign or hair or anything and learning about these habitats as well. And wildlife conservation photography is just following this really strict code of ethics. You want to leave wildlife like you found it. You don't want to disturb or harm the wildlife. And then it goes further with using the resulting photos for good, like I hope I'm doing with the greater adjutant, educating, raising awareness for what Pernima is doing, um, hopefully to help, uh, you know, attract people towards her work, inspire them to follow that conservation model, but also to educate the public on these animals. Prior to her two visits to India, Carla followed what must be every nature lover's dream and went to the Galapagos, off the Ecuadorian coast of South America, the islands where Charles Darwin famously formulated his theories on evolution. 
One of her photographs from there, of a cormorant, quickly made it into the Galapagos Observatory's 2019 calendar. But it's a different one she took on the islands that best reveals the personal, comedic, and quite tender touch that you can often find in her images. Um, that's a marine iguana with a lava lizard, and it's a mutualistic relationship. So the little lava lizard sits on the marine iguana's head and eats the flies that are bothering the marine iguana and bits of dead skin. So it's this mutualistic relationship between the two. I didn't know that when I saw the photo, um, but because I do have a comedic sense, I thought it was hilarious. If anyone wants to photograph wildlife, one of my biggest things I want to do, I want people to connect with it. Like they can't see what you were doing, but you were smiling and laughing. And I think it's because I literally got down as flat as I could on the ground to get the shot. You want to show that connection and to have that connection, you got to get down on the level. And that means that you're going to get dirty. You're going to lay on your stomach. You're going to scratch up your knees. So, so the question is for people who are listening to this, who maybe find themselves in, in a rut like you had in your early thirties in an, in an environment where you know, you were wondering about whether you could sustain uh, a future doing what you were doing. And you were also felt that you were drinking too much and right at a, a tipping point. Is there any advice that you can give on getting out of that rut slash stepping out of their comfort zone? Because you do come across as somebody who managed to make this incredibly positive change in their life. The biggest tip is to just get out of your own way and, and work on yourself and try to shut out all these other voices of what people say you should do. And I could not hear my inner voice guiding me until I stopped drinking. And I started to hear this little voice, not just because I'm a ventriloquist, but you know, everyone says you have an internal compass. So maybe you can just cut it to this, find your internal compass, because I'm convinced it, it, it has guided me through some really hard decisions and it's, it's usually always right. You can find many of Carla's images from India to the Galapagos to those taken in her Catskills backyard at carlarhodes.photography. There you can also find more information about the greater adjutant. Carla additionally posts her photography on Instagram at Miss Carla Rhodes. Rhodes is spelt R-H-O-D-E-S. We should also have a couple of the images referenced during this interview posted on our social media. Search for One Step Beyond Podcast. On the last episode of One Step Beyond, I talked with Paula Lucas, a high school teacher who used her exercise time during lockdown to get off the couch and start running, and went from zero to 5k in the space of an impressive eight weeks. I thought I would take her positive start and, if you'll excuse the terrible pun, run further with it over this and future episodes. Running, after all, is my thing. Now, the impetus for the field recording you're about to hear about this is actually the Ontiora Mile, which normally takes place here on the track in Kingston in the middle of June, and which this year, no surprise, has been offered as a virtual race, with two weeks to complete it and extra bragging rights for those who supply a GPS-confirmed time. For me, this mile challenge was a chance to get some sort of quasi-racing under my belt. I've really, really missed it the last few months and for the community aspect as well. 
But in doing so, I realised it's also an opportunity to discuss how to take your running to the next step. Let's say you too recently started out. Maybe you got to the 5k distance. Maybe you have 5 miles under your belt already or more. Maybe, like the former me, you run longer distances but you found yourself at something of a plateau. Like that former me, you always figured that improving your running just meant covering longer distances. Yet for all that you've upped your mileage, you don't seem to be getting any faster. How then do you improve? Listen on to find out. So it's Saturday morning, it's June 20th, it's just about bang on 8 o'clock and I'm going to head over to the track for some speed work. Doing speed work allows you just to know what you're capable of, it allows you to finish stronger on certain races, it just gives you that little burst, even if you consider yourself more of a mid-distance, long-distance runner, which a lot of us do as we age, it really, really does help in that regard. Generally speaking, over the years, I've been very happy any time that my mile could finish under six minutes. I'm making no pretenses to be any kind of like super runner. I guess in the grand scheme of things, I'm mid-pack. I'm fortunate that I started on this late enough that I kind of got better as I got older. So I do tend to place well in my age groups. But, you know, there's always going to be people ahead of me. I accept that. That's fine by me. So although the track can actually be a little bit tedious at times, I mean, it's 400 metres, you know, you've got to do four of them for a mile. Uh, if you want to go out and do a five-mile run, that's 20 times around the same track. And also, it's R1 is very, very, very open to the sun, which is why I go early in the day or late in the day. But having said that, it's soft underfoot. You know what you're getting. You can mark out your, uh, your, your, mark out your runs in 50 or 100 meter increments. And certainly, like I say, it serves a great purpose. So I'm over at the track now. It's actually a little bit quieter than I expected. I'm, I'm surprised. Weekday mornings, it's been incredibly busy. And again, I think that's because people just didn't have many options on where they felt it was safe to exercise. And ironically, that meant they all tended to congregate at the same place. Anyway, the track is not too busy. There's always a little bit of a breeze out here, but there is no respite from the sun. And there are people walking around, which is lovely. I always like to see that because... It's all about exercise. There were some people on the field in the middle. There's always usually some people doing a little bit of like uh, hill work on the steps and the bleachers. I can see somebody doing that now. I'm going to just start off by doing what's absolutely essential uh, if you intend to take your jogging or your running even halfway seriously, and that's a warm-up. Um, 15 to 20 minutes does it for me. Typically at a starting pace for me, that's around a mile and a half to two miles. And particularly if you're going to put in any speed work and, and test your legs, especially first thing in the morning, you really want to get that warm-up in. So I've just completed my 20-minute warm-up, decided to do two miles. And just to give you an example, my first mile, 10.20 pace, second mile, 9.30 on the last two laps, decided to just pick it up a little bit and I should also add in there I tend to do the sun salutations as a regular extra stretching exercise it's a combination of sort of pretty natural running stretches with very familiar yoga stretches they really work on the calves and the quads and balance and core after my warm-up I went across the track to talk with Steve Schellenkamp he's the race director for the Ontiora Mile which he arranged this year as a pay-what-you-want donation-based fundraiser for the Kingston Food Pantry, Thrift Shop and Community Cafe People's Place. 
Steve also writes a weekly running column for the local paper, The Daily Freeman. Additionally, he leads, for free, the speed workout on this same track on Wednesday evenings, when weather and pandemics allow. That speed workout is for anyone and everyone, regardless of age, experience or perceived ability. What if somebody's like just starting out running and they're sort of enjoying themselves and they say, okay, so the speed work thing sounds like it can help me. What would be your recommendation to start with if they got a track nearby? So one of the real standard workouts has always been doing quarters, repeat quarters. Quarter miles, do you mean? Yes. I think the mistake most people make when they come to the track, especially when they're really new to running, is they step on a track and they think they have to run really fast. Uh, and they run too fast, you know. Um, the cool, the warm-up is so important, isn't it? Well, you, for, you, yeah, yeah. Positively, you need to warm up for a workout or for... Even when you first start, if you're just going out for a five-mile run, you want to make the early part of your five-mile run your warm-up. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to workouts, uh, the traditional structure is warm-up, workout, cool-down. Yeah. That's like the three phases of a workout. What I like to yeah. do, uh, especially for racing, is that, that two-mile warm-up mm-hmm. that you just did, then do some stretching, mm-hmm. some loosening up, whether it's uh, uh, the more static stretching that a lot of us are comfortable with or the newer, more dynamic stretching. But some type of stretching after you get yourself nice and warm. That's really important, and actually I do do that, and I was just mentioning that. I was thinking, although I've got certain ones that are built in that I like doing, I know you like doing the ladder a lot, I was figuring if I did a quarter mile, like one lap, then two laps, yeah, with obviously with you know, cool downs in between, then three laps, and then sort of saw what I was able to do for a mile today, and that would give me half a mile to cool down afterwards, I'd be at five miles. It felt like, like you know, that's, sort of, that's my own creation today, but it feels like it makes sense. Uh, yes, it does. And the thing is that with um, speed work, uh, you should err on the side of underdoing it versus overdoing it. You should err where, oh, I could do one more or I could do two more just as well, but then you don't do them. I still make the mistakes people make. Uh, I was getting ready for the virtual mile that Fleet Feet was putting on mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. So I did a workout on uh, Saturday I did some quarters and I came back to the track the next day and I was going to do another quarters workout and I was on my last quarter uh, I'm 330 meters in and I look at my watch and I want to get like one second quicker I pick up the pace and bang I hurt my groin coaches are uh, human too (laughs) (laughs) all right have have fun running thank you thanks for your time a few points related to my chat there with Steve He was actually suggesting that before you really get to the track and do kind of proper speed workouts, you could start with little hill repeats. Just means finding a short little hill close to you, jogging up it best you can for a minute or so, walking back down, just getting used to that. It'll really build your strength. And the fartlek, which is a Swedish term for speed play, where you kind of just do whatever you want. But anyway, you may also have heard me refer there to the ladder. That's one of many different workouts that are based on time. In a ladder workout, you might run four minutes at pace, then five, then six, and then five, and then four. I'm especially fond of a nine-to-five workout, where you start at nine minutes and work down to five. 
Time-based speed workouts like these are great for when you're on a road or a rail trail and looking to mix it up. I find that on the track, I prefer to take advantage of the markings. And on that note, 1600 meters does not equal a mile, despite what we've been suggesting. The precise distance is 1609.34, and Steve always makes sure the Ontario mile includes those extra few steps on top of the four laps. This will make sense as you listen on. So based on Steve's advice there, I made sure to do my sun salutations, a few other stretches before doing my first lap, which is a quarter mile, which I delivered like bang on two minutes. So that's an eight minute mile if you can do your math. So that was 3.57 for the two laps. Definitely a few seconds faster than the 2.02 for the one lap. So not by a lot. And, uh, and you can hear I'm breathing heavier. You know, one of the things about tracks is they can be very exposed. And this one in Kingston certainly gets the morning sun. I think if I'd been here at 7am instead of 8.15, I actually suspect I'd have seen more people here. So the three-quarter mile was actually way faster. Did that five minutes 30. And uh, checked my heart rate afterwards. It was way up to 140. I can go a lot higher, but that's certainly... I could feel it. I've got a resting heart rate maybe in the high 50s to 60. So that tells you I've been pushing it a little bit. And and yet it feels good. You know, you gradually realise, okay, I can do this. So I think what I'm going to aim to do then... Is try and do a seven minute mile like 659. That means 145 laps. Let's see what I'm capable of. All right, very happy with that. Pulled in six minutes 50, including the extra 10 meters. Steve was standing right there to make sure I did it. And that's 10 seconds faster than I aimed. And for somebody who's just been out generally jogging of late, putting in a few long runs, some mountain runs, you know, the thought of doing a sub seven minute mile was quite daunting. When it came to it, with a proper warm up, some proper speed work leading into it, it was doable. And that's the takeaway I'd like all of us to have. We're capable of more than we often think we are. I hope you found that useful. And if you're just a starter runner, I hope you were able to listen past my admittedly obsessive time and heart rate management details. Yeah, us runners can get like that. The main thing is, if you want to improve your running, then mixing it up with a little hill work, a little fartlet and some speed work will not only make you a better runner, it'll make you a happier one too. If you're someone who's interested in foreign travel, history, nature and the beauty that comes with it, and you're not scared of a little exercise at altitude, then Machu Picchu in Peru and the Inca Trail that surrounds it is probably very, very high on your list. It's certainly up there on mine now that I've done Kilimanjaro. But as I discussed on the last episode with Kili expert Henry Stedman, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought tourism to such regions to a complete and total halt. 
leaving those who depend on us travellers for their income, facing an additional financial crisis on top of threats from the virus, all exasperated in developing countries that don't have robust social safety nets. So when on Instagram recently, I found myself looking at a photograph of Peruvian female mountain guides as part of a GoFundMe campaign to support the women of Mountain Gods Peru, a company run by a lady called Elizabeth Cuillerarman that handles treks on the Inca Trail. I was intrigued. Being aware that there are virtually no female guides on Kilimanjaro, I looked further into the figures in Peru and learned that just a few years ago there were only 146 women registered to work on Machu Picchu alongside 7,000 men. So I reached out to the fundraiser's organiser for more information about the disparity and what she knows of how her new friends in Peru are struggling to cope during the pandemic. So my name is Marcela Chang. Um, I went to Peru uh, about a year ago in July 2019. And I went with WA, Women High on Adventure Company. And so the idea was to hike through uh, Salkantai Trail and then go to Machu Picchu. So WA, they hire uh, local guides uh, to take us on the trek. And so in Peru, they hire mountain guides which is a company owned by this wonderful woman. Her name is Elizabeth. Um, she is from a small town called Chinchero. It's pretty close to Cusco. And so Elizabeth, she told me that since she was little, she really wanted to work with, um, you know, being a guide because she grew up in the mountains. She has this huge love for nature and the mountains. And so that was her dream. So she went to school to become a guide, and she met um, all these people who inspired her to, to become a guide. She got all her certificates, everything she needed. So then she told me that once she started working um, with the companies, they were all run by men. She was one of the very few women who worked um, for the companies, and she said that she experienced a lot of harassment from the men. She said that they used to tell her that that was a, that was men's work, that she was not supposed to be there. She did this for a few years until she decided that she wanted to do something herself and she wanted to hire women because she wanted to help women become guides. Uh, so she created Mountain Guides and she hires all these beautiful women. I met one, her name is Rosa. And she trains them really well. They learn English, that so they can uh, have different um, people from different countries. And she does a wonderful job. She also hires men, like the porters and the people who cook for us. Uh, they were mostly men, but the guides are women. So are those kind of um, those kind of hardships, uh, prejudice, I guess, is uh, evident all over the mountain and, and, and beyond where you are there in yes. Peru? Yes. Uh, she said that it was the owners of the companies, the people she worked with, all the men that she had to interact with. She had these issues with. Uh, Elizabeth also created like a school for the community. She created uh, like a craft center so that they can make stuff like beautiful crafts that they make. And then she brings the tourists there to, to buy from them and, she is a great support for them. And so that's one of the reasons why I created the fundraise because 
this is such a wonderful community and they're they're really struggling because the government forgets about them. They don't get any help from anyone. So they pretty much depend on tourism and in part Elizabeth to to survive. So did you maintain contact with Elizabeth then after visiting Machu Picchu? I did. We had a great connection. She has this beautiful spirit. She she gives me so much peace when we talk. <laughs> so we I like to keep in touch with her and yeah, we kept talking and we kind of lost touch for a little bit, um, for a couple months. And then I just kept having dreams about her. And I thought I have to call Elizabeth and see how she's doing. And then she told me about the struggles. And then um, I was like, we got to do something. Initially, I sent her some money. And then I contacted the women who were with me in this trip and told them, asked them if they could help. Um, and then I uh, contacted Allison, one of the war owners. And then uh, she suggested that we create a GoFundMe. So I did that um, to help Elizabeth in the community. So it's mostly for her to help her community survive. It's not so much for the company. And what are you hoping to raise for them? I am hoping my goal is $10,000 uh, to help the community for food and medicine. And I mean, if we get more than 10000 that's wonderful. <laughs> I think they, they're really going to need the help because we don't know how long this is going to last. Right now, South America is, has been hit pretty hard. Peru is in a very bad place, and we don't know when the tourism or their tourists are going to be allowed again. Tell me a little bit about visiting Machu Picchu and about Peru in general, because those of us who haven't been there, we're going to have to wait a long time. So Machu Picchu is one of the most magical places I have seen in my entire life. <laughs> I have visited many places. Um, and there's this beautiful energy there that just attracts, like you can feel the nature, like you can feel the spirit of Pachamama, which is Mother Earth. Um, you can feel it. It gives you goosebumps. Like I, I was crying and I didn't know why. And it was just that beautiful energy that you feel there. The mountains are just amazing like you, you can see from the pictures how be beautiful the mountains are but when you're there and you see them it's like the mountains are singing to you there's this beautiful feel uh for the nature and it's just you just have to experience it but it's just a very magical thing the people in peru are so kind they're so beautiful um the food is amazing and cusco is gorgeous like definitely I mean you have to go through Cusco so you can go to Machu Picchu and I highly suggest spending a couple of days there because it's beautiful and then you go to Aguascalientes which is this little town it's like like a little town out of a book as far as you know um is Elizabeth and her fellow guides is their health okay I mean how is COVID is COVID reached the the mountain region there around Machu Picchu so the last time I spoke with her, she said that there were some cases in Cusco, but it was not too bad. Um, her town, Chinchero, she said that there was not no cases. Um, it's a very small community, and there's no transportation. So it, when she goes there, she has to walk like six hours from Cusco to get there and back. So it's pretty impossible for people to get there, unless they're willing to walk. So I think they're pretty safe. You can contribute to Marcella's campaign for Elizabeth and her female mountain guides at GoFundMe.com. Search Support for Peruvian Mountain Guides. 
or visit Woa Travel's Instagram page. That's W-H-O-A Travel. Hey, you! I am a voracious podcast consumer, and especially over these past few weeks, as our world has been rightly rocked off its own comfort zone over the issue of racial injustice, I've been busy seeking out shows that could help enlighten my own perspective. I'll freely admit that I'm uncomfortable with the fact that most of my running community, for example, is white, despite the diverse demographics of my home area, which is why the Keeping Track episode that dropped on May 30th was so important. Keeping Track is hosted by a trio of female Olympians, and this episode, entitled Running While Black, features a lengthy interview of Alison Basir, an endurance athlete, activist, and mental health advocate who is also a leading light of the Black Girls Run movement and recently wrote a powerful piece for Outside magazine following the murder of jogger Armoud Arbery in Georgia. From closer to home, The Pain Cave is a regular podcast hosted by Sean Gunk's runner Jason Friedman, and on episode 61, entitled Eracism, he featured Yassine Dibun, one of America's top ultra runners, on much the same subject. I also found myself listening to Burn It All Down for the first time. This is a feminist sports podcast that dares to go where the trio of Olympians on keeping track might still fear to tread. Episode 162 on Black Lives Matter and the sports media featured the fascinating interview of Anita Asante, an Olympian footballer who also plays for Chelsea Ladies in my UK homeland. British footballers have been rightly in the news for their unequivocal support of the Black Lives Matter movement but Anita rightly calls out the wider game for its lack of diversity off the pitch. Plus, the Burn It All Down hosts do exactly what their show title promises, setting metaphorical fire to the hollow statements by white-run major sporting companies and to the sexism of the sports media industry, while taking time out to praise what is good in our world. A number of travel shows I follow have been featuring guests of colour this past month, And if some of that sounds a little convenient or tokenistic all of a sudden, well, let me at least give props to the friendly, informative and irreverent All the Shit I Learned Abroad podcast, which has already planned to turn June over to elevate the voices of others. And I know I mentioned this show last time out, but the latest episode of Travel Tales Beyond the Brochure decided to get even more off topic with a truly riveting episode entitled When Protest Works highlighting three specific examples in British history where mass protests changed the future course of that history. Listen to it to remind yourself to keep up the good fight. This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music in this episode was revealed in this nature by Noel Fletcher. The theme song One Step Beyond is by Madness, used with their permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. You can reach out to us at onestepbeyond at ijamming.net I-J-A-M-M-I-N-G dot You can also find us on all social media. Just search One Step Beyond Podcast. And our website is buried over at acast.com. All these links will be supplied in the show notes. And if you are listening online, please know that you can subscribe 
and download on just about every podcast platform known to man. It's always great if you want to leave a positive review, and it's especially great if you want to reach out. Whatever you're doing in the world, peace.